Right. So, you know, we're all going to marry Jesus. And if you're a dude, even a heterosexual dude, you're going to marry a dude someday at the end of time. So congratulations. Jesus is queer and so are you, as demanded by theology. Back to Barefoot to Emmaus. Barefoot. I'm Byron. I'm Char. And we're glad you're with us. We are very glad that you are with us. And for tonight, we will have a very fun discussion. <laughs> Hopefully, this will be a little bit more lighthearted in some ways, going deep as well. And also some spicy, spicy. Spicy! Because, Byron, why don't you tell us what's going on tonight? We're talking about queer theology! I felt like it was very important for you to get to know Byron in this way, and because this is so much of who Byron is and what he brings to the theological conversation, it is a gifting that he has in his person. And in that way, it is a gift to the Christian community. Mm-hmm. And it's been a huge blessing for me. I've been so transformed by it. <laughs> transformed. <laughs> okay. This, this is what it's like to, to live with Byron. Um, all the jokes. All, all the gay puns. Um, I appreciate that, Char. We're now well into recording our podcasts, and I had some tension about whether or not queerness should be one of the early ones that we get into. Why? Um, For a similar reason that I'm not taking any queer uh, classes in seminary right now. I didn't want to come and be the queer guy, the gay guy again. Uh, I'm bi, not gay, but, right, like, there's there's this pressure. I've spent years and years avoiding this topic Mm. dwelling into this topic i've been tokenized i've been um you know the poster child at my old church so it's it's a topic that i love it's definitely probably the topic i single-handedly know most about in my entire life i mean i went to i have an undergraduate degree in oceanography and i know more about queer (laughs) theology than the ocean because you've had to because i've had to right that's actually one of the one of the things i wrote about in my application to grad school that i that some people get to do theology out of a sense of devotion or passion or mm-hmm. interest or love even and in the line of liberation theologies i think queer theologians or queer people have to do theology as a means of survival yeah Um, that if I could not figure out a way to reconcile who I was with what I understood of God and the Bible and all of that, my literal eternal soul was in peril. Like it's, it's not like it's a matter of being able to literally exist or not. Um, so it's, yeah, anyway, it's a topic that I love. So I'm glad we'll, I'm glad we'll go into it today. I mean, it is your person that is threatened by the hegemony. So when I think about liberation theology, most often it focuses on the poor as the subject mm-hmm. that is the central axis or epicenter of the movement of God as the defender of the oppressed. Mm-hmm. That oppressed obviously extends beyond just the poor, but it is often the poor specifically that Gutierrez or other liberation theologians yeah. will speak about uh, from a Latin American context. Yeah. Now, queer theology is absolutely also a liberation theology because it centers the marginalized identity of the queer community, not just by virtue of them being marginalized, but yeah. by for the purpose of their survival and their thriving and their liberation mm-hmm. from the systems that oppress them. Yeah. Now, in this case, it is more specifically the religious system that is oppressing <sighs> them, which has a certain irony to it. It is. It's so hard. So, yeah, I mean, there's there's um, issues in liberation theology that are addre- that are specifically addressed to the poor. I would say womanist theology, femini- mm-hmm. feminist theology, black theology. Yeah. These are all kind of in that same vein. Now, with 
womanist or feminist theology similarly to queer theology, right? Okay, so, sorry, what I'm saying is the Bible is not against the poor. It should be very clear that that is the case. Yes. Right? So, so practically, what Gutierrez and other liberation theologians get to do... They're drawing out the obvious. Exactly. Somewhat conveniently, <laughs> in my view, is that, yeah, they're drawing out the obvious. Great way to put it. That, that they are reminding us of what we should have known all along. Like, it's kind of weird that you missed that point when yeah, you're reading the Bible. It is kind of, it's <laughs> kind of ridiculous. Everything in the Bible. It is kind of ridiculous. The, the, an extra difficulty added on to queer theology is that the Bible has been used as the primary mm. weapon against queerness. Yeah. Um, there's the classic clobber passages. There's uh, six or seven, depending on how you read it, passages in the Bible that specifically prohibit... Uh, appear to specifically prohibit same-sex erotic interactions. One that appears to prohibit um, same-sex female erotic interactions, but that's probably, yeah, uh, Romans one twenty-six. Um, but as you've pointed out in the past, it is much more focused on the male yes, sexuality. Absolutely. For, with good reason, I, I'm sure you'll get to later. Yeah. So, and then there's two more verses, two more concepts or verses that are subtextual or intertextual that are often used to deny the veracity of queer relationships and queer identity. So, uh, just so we know, like, LGBTQ+, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, intersex, asexual, all sorts of... any identity that is not straight, cisgender. When we're talking about clobber passages. I know those are the main passages uh -huh. that have been used against um, gay, gay men. men in particular. Primarily. Are there not also passages that are have been used against the trans community? Uh -huh. For example, what is it? Genesis 1, 27. In yes. the image of God, they were created male and female. There's this kind of identity that excludes intersex yeah. or trans people in that binaristic language. Yeah. Um, or... Deuteronomy 22.5. Yeah, yeah, with the cross-dressing. Yeah, um, and it's specifically, if I can remember this correctly, I just looked at it uh, today randomly. Um, <laughs> not that one reads Deuteronomy often, but uh, yeah, Deuteronomy 22.5, I believe, says um, a man should not wear woman's clothes, nor should men's clothes be worn by a woman. Ooh, the passive voice there. Um, well, I don't know if the passive voice is specifically important. The, the importance is... The aspect of that that it focuses on men mm -hmm. a man should not do this and men's clothes are the issue so women passing as men it's so it's almost still the man it's still this focus in a way um if, if man's if, fault you said yeah yeah like like if, if a woman is wearing man's clothing it is almost like a sin against men yes right yeah yeah that the that the issue is the transgression of masculine yes identity. exactly um, either a woman taking it on falsely, quote unquote, or, or whatever. So yeah, there, there are a couple. The wild thing is actually, <laughs> according to the Bible, or as, as long as we're stuck in the Bible, and I don't mean stuck negatively, but grounded in the Bible rather, trans identity is actually the easiest place to start mm. if you're looking for an affirming theology. Yeah. Because single, like single-handedly, the topic of eunuchs. So... I mean, it's it's violent, it's gruesome, it's gross, right? This this whole podcast we're gonna we're gonna be talking about difficult things, whether because it's talking about sex or talking about violence done to marginalized people. But eunuchs are people, often slaves, almost always slaves, who have been castrated or emasculated. Um, so their testicles cut off or all of their external genitalia cut off for the purpose of them being considered safe to be around female royalness, right? Generally, it could also be uh, for sex slaves. Mm -hmm. They're if you just cut someone's balls off, then they still, then they can be, then they're the, this like erotic um, fantasy or fetish, huh. potentially. So it gets gets really complicated, and 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 there's actually there are religious holy reasons. Uh, sex, in some ways, is set as a antagonistic idea to holiness in the Bible and, and a couple... In the Old Testament, too? Definitely in the Old Testament. 
we're seeing this prolific nature of, um, you know, go forth and multiply, right? But you still... Children um, are the blessing. Children are the blessing, but sex is still an issue, right? Because... <laughs> I don't know how you're going to get there. <laughs> what kind of stork you're waiting no, no, for. But... <laughs> it's not that sex is bad. It's that... So specifically, right, like, again, Levitical laws, uh, an emission of semen is considered unclean. Unclean, yeah. A dude's got to go wash himself and he's unclean till evening. Now, or a woman period argued, blood. Well, that one takes a whole week. So again, right, this comes down so much to hmm. misogyny and yeah. patriarchy. Um, Doesn't it also have to do, though, with blood being something that is particularly unclean? unclean and also, debatably, holy in this separate type of way, right? It is the life. That's why they don't eat the blood of an animal, because the Bible says the blood is the life. There's this kind of dual understanding of of the life being in the breath and the life being in the blood. Hmm. So yeah, there's this blood magic type of idea. So, but, but all, all this to say, like many religions had eunuchs as priests. Yeah. So in some cases it was a, it was a holy thing, but it was a whole, they were holy because if they were emasculated or castrated, it meant that they couldn't be tainted by semen or, sex or something like that mm. so there's still this tension between the two but that didn't count for the israelites mm. the eunuchs were excluded from the temple even the the most external layer of the temple yeah. the, the outer courts yeah were still I, you know i think people of other forms of uncleanness were still welcome into the outer courts but eunuchs were excluded from that yeah even foreigners maybe or like yeah women. foreigners exactly they could come into the outer courts yeah they shall not enter the assembly of god don't know where that one is, but probably Leviticus. Um, and not to not to shit on it on Leviticus. Here's the thing that I, I here's the thing about being queer. I know my Bible so damn well because of being queer, right? I would be nowhere near as good a Christian or as knowledgeable a Christian at least if I weren't queer. So that's a wild thing to think about. But you are also particularly unique of queer spiritual people that I know who come from a Christian background in how devoted you are to the Bible and to biblical tradition. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess this is going on a different tangent. I want to come back to this, this feminist root of, or um, this liberationist root of what the Bible actually is trying to say and why we've royally screwed that up. But... Yes. So the, the primary issue, and this is changing quickly, right? If I had been born 40 years ago, there's no way, you know, I'm, I'm bi, I'm pretty, not, how, how do I put this? I am pretty, but, <laughs> <laughs> right, like Kinsey scale, and Kinsey scale has its limitations, right? There's no this percentage, you're not 50% attracted to women and 50% attracted sure, sure. to men. It, it's like, I sometimes say bi people are like werewolves um, or Jesus, um, that a werewolf is 100% a werewolf, right? Like you are fully this wolf creature and fully a person at the same time. Yeah, you're not not a wolf or werewolf yeah. even when you haven't transformed yet. Exactly. Um, Jesus is not 50% God and 50% human. Sure, Jesus sure. is 100% um, God and 100% human. I'm 100% straight and 100% gay. Like, So this gets into... A, a bigger deal that I fundamentally think that Christianity is at its core a queer religion. Here we go. And I don't mean a gay religion. I mean a queer religion. And there, I mean, it's a little gay, but, but we'll get there. Okay. So I wanted to get you, you brought me to this question of, oh, okay. So queerness is often held in opposition to belief in God or being a Christian in as much as they're presented as mutually exclusive. Because of the clobber passages, because of the context of homophobia within the Christian tradition? Yeah, I would blame a culture more than, you know, most people don't know the clobber passages all that well. Sure. They just kind of like, oh, the Bible says something against it. And I mean, it's so the perpetuated itself in a way yes. that's, yeah. you know, exacerbated the issue. You know, you've mentioned before that the, the word homosexual wasn't even invented yet. <laughs> right that's a, okay go go check out 
something called 1946. It's this new documentary. It might be still coming out. Haha. Ha. Um, <laughs> but I know a number of the uh, executive leadership and, and people on that. Hey, hey. On, on that whole project. Uh, but this was, the, the primary person I know is named Kathy Baldock. And she is a straight woman who was raised in this traditionally homophobic, like, gays are going to hell type of thing. And then she met someone who was gay. And she was like, oh. That'll do it. <laughs> it it if should you have do it. Love in your heart. <laughs> well, no, not even that, right? Because my, you know, I, I have people who disagree with me and who still claim to love me and I think do care for me. There's, I, there's a huge conversation about what is love. And this is... Baby, don't hurt. I, yeah, right? Like, I just don't have so hurt. many. No I have been more. forced to go to, like, the highest depths of philosophical and emotional and relational reasoning to figure out just how to exist. But anyway, okay, so Kathy Baldock met um, a queer woman while hiking and was suddenly realized that so much of what she had been taught was a lie. So she went and did tons of research, largely mm -hmm. in secular society, as to the understandings, uh, you know, from f starting essentially with Freud. So the word homosexual was invented at the end of the 19th century by psychologists. And the word homosexual, right, it, the only re that word is actually older than the word heterosexual, right? You define the aberration first, and then, <laughs> and then these other words come into play. But it was, oh, I mean, I, I'm not going to go into tracking the history of what homosexual me meant and didn't mean, but it's, it's whack. So anyway... In 1946, the people who were in charge of the trans the translation committee of the Revised Standard Version of the Bible, mm -hmm. they translated, they were the first wor people to put the word homosexual in any Bible translation. Womp womp. Womp womp. They admitted that it was a mistake 20 after, years later. Yeah, exactly. After the fact. Um, yeah, there's a, a dude who wrote to them and was like, hey, I think this might hurt people go check out the documentary 1946 so yeah i mean you have to have the humility to realize that so much of what we've been taught about so much of theology but especially almost everything that people have been taught about understanding of queerness and theology is just wrong it's lies mm -hmm. and you know that not because of your studies necessarily but because of your personhood there is an intrinsic embodied understanding yeah god's law is written on my heart yo <laughs> yeah in a, in a way that uh -huh. you can challenge yourself and question yourself and dig into that which i as having been your best friend for the last seven years now <laughs> i have seen you walk that walk and question that but that internal knowledge and truth is part of who you are and it can be diluted and covered up by the polemical culture around you that is oppressing you yeah but ultimately as i've seen it comes forth yeah when when you find that freedom and that gives you a strength and an advantage in the way that you understand christianity that the rest of us people like me need to listen to and need to learn from that's a very gracious of you to say and it's very kind of you to put me on that end of the the conversation but it certainly has not always been that way yeah um i mean i have a long long history with my own experience you know i i used to be as as homophobic as the next person um potentially more uh, yeah i mean potentially more i do find that the most homophobic people feel like they've got something to prove exactly um i don't know how many people have come out to me privately and said like yeah i've been really trying to figure this out i've been struggling with it and that language of struggling is so common mm. and it makes an external observer think right there's just this very easy logic train of oh this person is suffering because they're gay their gayness is making them suffer gayness is bad you know but when people say like oh are you confused about your gender like nah that passed relatively quickly i'm pretty confident about my gender and sexuality now <laughs> what i'm confused about is why other people are so confused about it or mm. upset about it because yeah i mean in our in our modern society so we have this idea of this 
this traditionalism, this sense of sacrifice, take up your cross. That's in the Bible, right? There is a sense of, in this world, you will have tribulation. So that's one option. And yet, at the same time, somehow Jesus also says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Uh, my yoke is easy, hmm. right? There's this, there's this duality of, am I supposed to trust my heart? I, one thing that I can say is I never, ever, ever felt convicted in my spirit by the Holy Spirit or God or Jesus that my sexual inclinations toward people of my own gender and other genders was wrong. Mm -hmm. I certainly felt it from the church. Yeah. And as the church being this representative of God on earth, or is supposed to be, it is almost impossible not to internalize that message. So I hated myself for years right i mean i said this in in our introduction type of thing i tried to pray the gay away i i realized i was bi and my heart was broken and then liberation theology style i i think i hope it was broken open to see how much grace i need not because this is some special unique type of brokenness that god has gifted me with to teach me some cosmic lesson but because of the amount of god's grace in the midst of, you know, I was, I was trying to reinterpret this question of Paul's thorn in the flesh. Some people think like, oh, Paul had um, epilepsy or Paul was gay, you know, and that's what he was worried about. I think Paul just had a grouchy friend, <laughs> right? It says Satan gave me this antagonistic thing. I don't remember exactly what the words are. And I prayed three times for God to take it away. Well, I can tell you, I prayed a hell of a lot more than three times yeah. to not be bi or to not be gay, right? So you think it was a smaller thing? Because um, to me, three in the Bible means total, <laughs> sure, right? Sure, so sure. it's not saying he only prayed three times. But Paul is not the most symbolic person. He is, he is pretty just blunt and out there. It didn't, sa it didn't seem like he was making a uh, symbolic statement about his own life. Anyway, the, the, the point is that potentially, you know, if Paul just had this grouchy person in his life, Oh, and this is kind of, I'm just going all over the place because this is it. such a huge topic. If Paul had this grouchy person in his life who <laughs> was angry or who, you know, who was upset about a particular stance he had taken and was bugging him about it. His celibate stance? <laughs> sure. I mean, I think Paul was ace, but that's, that's a little beside the point. He obviously doesn't understand <laughs> what, like, sexuality is. He's just like, yeah, everyone should be like me. It's not that hard. But it also, you know, Paul was the one who kind of said, like, if you need to get married, fine. You know, if, if you're going to be burning for burning with burning lust. With lust. <laughs> or, you know, abstain for a time so that you can pray, right? This is that contradiction between yeah. sexuality and holiness, any sexuality. Um, okay, so anyway, Paul has this thorn in the flesh, and I think it could be an external thing. You know, that Paul wants to get rid of this relationship, this person who's, like, bugging him and telling him, hey, you're a heretic, you're a false prophet, you're doing all these bad things. And that God is insisting that Paul stay in relationship with this, with this Satan, right? This accuser. Oof. We were just getting to Job earlier and what Satan's role. Not to get too off base. For another time. For, for another time. So anyway, I had a really terrible personal relationship with my sexuality. Not because of anything that was causing me, I mean... If you hate yourself, you know, I never particularly got into self-harm behaviors or I, I got into like some dangerous behaviors, right? Like people point at the high drug use or the high promiscuity or whatever of the LGBTQ plus community. And they, again, do this false conflation of like, why is it this way? Obviously, being queer makes you do drugs. So... <laughs> You know, but it's it's the oppression that people experience. You know, it's this ridiculous form of gaslighting. So anyway, I spent years praying for God to take this away because I felt like I should, right? This yeah. sacrifice. Even when I first met you a number of years ago, I was still seriously considering and, and seriously pursuing with the highest degree of integrity I could muster yeah. this question of I will give my sexuality to you god as this sacrifice as this you know this deference just in case because 
I love you. You know, so back to this contradiction, this mutual exclusivity. I loved God too much to consider or be able to put God down to like become a not Christian. But I also, I thought, you know, who, who in their right mind takes something that is as central to their being as who they love and try to cut that out with a knife, you know, to do this kind of spiritual auto-surgery. Mm. How violent is that to oneself? So, like, there's a lot of harm that I'm still healing from. And yet, that harm was done in worship, I think, to, to in order to please what I understood of God. Yeah, can, can it be true worship, though? <laughs> because, the, I mean, this gets to the... Uh, yeah, the aspect of intention uh-huh. versus impact. Uh-huh. If you're doing something that is truly harmful, yeah, does God see the heart and intention of that and honor that, or does God recognize the impact of that and condemn such action, or yeah. is there this space in between where God can still acknowledge and appreciate the good and still desire in the bad? For you to find freedom from that yeah 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 yeah. i mean i think of this so side a christianity is uh a view that holds that same-sex unions uh all of your authentic gender identity is uh real and blessed by god side b christianity acknowledges that it is real maybe created by god even but should not be practiced so i don't know what that means for that to some extent this idea of it's not a sin to be gay, it's just a sin to do gay stuff, falls apart really quickly, especially if you're a bi person. This idea of, like, don't act on your sexuality is impracticable. What counts as the sexuality? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that brings up to me this notion of demisexuality, mm. which is to say that you are attracted to people when you have an emotional connection to them. Mm. Now, I would personally argue that... Anyone who has any sexuality at all is at least marginally demisexual. Like, sure, you can be attracted to people that you've never met before, mm-hmm. but are you going to be as attracted to them if, you know... If you know that they're a complete jerk. Sure, exactly. <laughs> as opposed to you meet them and you get to know them and connect on a deep level, yeah. would you not be more attracted to them, at least marginally so? Mm-hmm. So there's all these like misunderstandings that are going about and these things to suss out and there's there, there's a guy named Dr. Wesley Hill, and I can't believe that in this queer theology talk, he's the first person I bring up. Because <laughs> he, he's very side B, right? Mm. Um, he acknowledges that he's gay. Some side B people, like, just hate themselves and live with this constant, like, turmoil. And I think m- most of us have been there. Yeah. And I think Dr. Wesley Hill used to be there. I think he now identifies as a gay celibate man. And celibacy... Oh, so here's the thing. Celibacy is a spiritual gift, like marriage, that cannot be imposed externally, right? That's a thing that God gives to you. And if God gives it to you, that also means God gives you the, the, the skills and the capacity to flourish in that. Well, it can be given to you by God. It can be imposed by humanity, but that is a harmful thing. Right. It was, so it's not, it's not true celibacy. It's like, you know, if you... Or it can be if, chosen by yourself. Is that, I, I think that God giving it as opposed I don't to think choosing it... Can it. Be, I, th- I don't think it can be chosen by itself. You don't think you can choose healthily. celibacy? I don't think it can be chosen by itself healthily. Right? Like, I can't just choose to get married if it's not actually a... Right? Marriage is considered a sacrament in some, sure, sure. In some cultures. Right? So you can't just choose that. It has to be... You, know, you, can, you, can, you can choose it, but that doesn't mean it's real. Like a friendship, right? I can, <laughs> I can friend you... But if you don't friend me back, it's not a friendship. It's just this, like, half an attachment. Well, I don't think the opposite of that is necessarily as true in the way that you can be called by God to a certain lifestyle that demands that you are celibate yeah. or otherwise that, that you are called to celibacy. But that is also a sense of calling that you can choose for yourself. I don't think everyone is imposed this sense of calling that God says, this is what's on your life. I think very often... What we choose to do in our lives is following what we understand God's heart to be, which is a more general sense of call yeah. that we lean into. So well, we, yeah. If we lean into the heart of God, 
and we consider for ourselves mm -hmm. that the best way to do so is to be celibate. I think that is still self-choosing instead of imposed by God, but it can still be honoring. Yeah, I mean, the, the point that I'm trying to get to is that it needs to be that the highest form of... Okay, so, random tangent, and there's so many of these. I'm trying to keep track in my, in my brain. There was a friend of mine who told me, we're going to get married. And I was like, damn it, no. Um, the because, prophecy? Yeah, the, you know, this friend had a prophetic prophecy and was like, oh, like, God has prepared you for me and me for you. And I'm like, I don't feel that, so no. Um, but the way that I had perceived the idea of spiritual gifts and calling is that if I, if that was true and I said no to it, then I was disobeying God, even if I didn't feel it right now. The issue was that this friend was wrong. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the way that, 22. yeah, but the way that I knew that it was wrong was because I didn't feel it. So you listened to your heart. Yes. Which, um, which is. A little problematic, right? Because you have this verse like, nothing is more deceitful than the human heart. Yeah, or like the flesh is weak, right? We yeah. have we oh, have passages. What a narrative. <laughs> Ultimate, like, Gnostic gaslighting yeah. is what that is. And it's in the Bible, and we need to take it seriously somehow. And I, and I would argue, I don't have verses particularly in my mind right now, but I would mm -hmm. argue that a listening to the spirit that resides within yeah. is, in some ways our most intimate connection for listening to God. Yeah. Potentially more so than the Bible or listening to community, you know, Jesus in yeah. the body of Christ communicating with oneself. I think mm -hmm. listening to the spirit within in some ways is the most intimate form of listening to God. And so I think mm -hmm. there's just a tension there where there can be aspects of the quote-unquote flesh or the heart there is. that can be quote-unquote deceitful. I'm using a lot of quotes here. Sure. <laughs> yes, this is all entrenched with a lot of connotation and stuff that would need to be unpacked more. Yeah. But I think on the other side, there's also the trueness of listening to oneself. Yeah. You're, you're talking about, in essence, the Wesleyan quadrilateral, or at least you're, you're touching on that, that there's this uh, idea of the way that you access God, and that is tradition, prayer, Council. I mean, I don't remember exactly what the Wesleyan quadrilateral is. I sure, have sure. my own sources of wisdom. So the Bible is one of them. Nature is one of them. Mm -hmm. Look at what nature says. Um, and that's particularly important for this, for this topic and this conversation. Because, you know, Paul says, does not nature itself teach you that men should not have long hair? Uh... <laughs> no, it, it doesn't teach that, right? So it's problematic <laughs> then when he uses the same word to say men gave up what was natural, the mm. natural use of the woman, and did these other things in Romans one twenty seven, uh, Or this idea of what was the original nature, quote-unquote, as defined or dis designed by God in the beginning. Um, so anyway, nature is an important one. Counsel, prayer, and your, your internal sense of self. So this friend who was like, we're going to get married. I knew that that wasn't... You know, Paul talks about testing a spirit. How do you test a spirit? Well, in Paul's day, because Gnosticism was the issue, uh, ask the spirit whether or not Jesus Christ came in the flesh. And if the spirit says no, then that's how you've tested that spirit. I'm, I'm just uh, finishing up a class right now on Ignatian spirituality, and there's this concept of consolation and desolation. Hmm. There's this, you know, pray, hold something to God, bring it to God. And if you have... If it if it brings you peace and consolation, consoling, it is, at least somehow, of God and worth pursuing or getting closer to. Because peace is a fruit of the Spirit. It is. And that which contains the fruit of the Spirit yeah. is a good tree. <laughs> a good tree bears good fruit, and a bad tree bears bad fruit. Yeah, you shall know it by its fruit. Yeah, Matthew 17, 18, 20, something like that. Sure, sure. Um, There's a lot more to unpack there. I'd be curious, yeah. is there a sense of false peace or, like, uh, a limited sure, piece. Sure. A desolation can lead to a consolation, and a consolation can lead to a desolation, and we can all be deceived about this, and that's why it takes spiritual maturity. But here's the thing. I'll just I'll just say this right now. Forcing LGBTQ people to be single mm -hmm. against their will, <laughs> or you know, manipulating them to be to think they should be single, uh, the the effects that the way that the church has handled queer identity 
it just leads to desolation, right? Self-harm, suicide, drug yeah. use, risky sexual behavior, all of these things. Whereas as soon as you just use someone's pronouns properly, as soon as you, you know, stop telling them they're going to go to hell if they kiss a boy, like, oh my God, suddenly they're not killing themselves and not wanting to die. Like, oh, what a miracle. Just yeah. following the, the fruit of the spirit. You're talking about... And that's not to say we're just making ourselves comfortable, right? I, I've had mentors, leaders in my life who are just who were saying like, oh, you're just looking for loopholes. You're just trying to make yourself comfortable. You're doing what your itching ears want to hear. You're talking about the negative fruit mm-hmm. of this, of the action of homophobia, internalized or uh, systemic. Sure. Yeah. In the church. Yes. The other aspect of that, which is also so worth mentioning, is the positive fruit of the reverse. Absolutely. Of a true welcoming. Yep. Because it's not just about people who are no longer being harmed. Yes. But it's about a, about a unique character, a unique spirit that is brought in vibrancy into mm-hmm. the church. A necessary spirit. A necessary spirit that the church would have lacking there would be the whole of the big beautiful rainbow yeah. that is god's color spectrum yeah that the body yeah exactly that the body of christ is incomplete without us a necessary role yeah. is fulfilled and and that was what i was getting at earlier is that oh. you have something to bring that i can't bring mm-hmm. that the perspective the embodiment and the truth that is true that is held within yourself within your body and spirit yeah. that is something that i do not have the same kind of personal access to and so i need you yeah you have a different beautiful thing sure <laughs> we all do we all bring something but yeah. you in what you bring is necessary and yeah. is valuable i was wondering if you could speak a little bit i know it's hard to put to words what all that is but what is it that you bring as a bi man as a queer man to Christianity. Yeah. Can we, like, I'm now trying to hold four different things in my head and get back to them. So let me boom, 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 boom those, and then I'll get back to that beautiful... Boom, 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 boom away. Yeah, I I will boom away this thing. Uh, So, okay. (laughs) Listening to that little voice inside um, and and looking for the thing that had most integrity. So you, you saw me discern and read and so let's see what was that okay boom number one (laughs) bishop yvette flunder is amazing flunders flunder uh she is a a big boom black she's a a black uh lesbian bishop of the anglican church episcopal church something and i was at a, a talk of hers once and this idea of your own like god in you in some way and she was talking against body image issues. She was talking about body positivity. And she said, sometimes people want to avoid talking about the things that are most important. So she was talking about the differences between gender yeah. as, as a positive thing, right? This, this, this color vibrant view of gender as, and race, you know, rather than colorblind. And she, she did this big sweeping motion with her arm over her whole body and said, all my stuff is good. Yeah. I am a living epistle. Mm. And I don't think she was the one who came up with that language, but the idea of, you know, as you said, kind of another way of knowing God's will. And what drove me mad was the contradiction between the message that I was getting from the church and leaders and people who, in, at many, in many cases, I trusted in a bunch of different areas except this one. At some point, I always just considered it a miracle when someone was affirming. It was like, how can you be someone who was not, who was not gay or had, you know, had no queer kids or anything? Like, it's a miracle that you're affirming. How? And, and one friend of mine said, I just believed my queer friends when they told me stuff. Yeah. And I was like, oh, 
Right, it could be that easy. You know, but I, in contrast, spent years, wasted years, hating myself. And I have had to confess of that in, in, in ways that I never thought I would mm. have to or be able to. Right? Confession is one of the most important things that a queer person can do because it is almost unavailable to them because of queerness in the church. Right? If I, as a queer man in a non-affirming setting, wanted to confess anything, let's say pride, lust, um, envy, you know, an actual sin, you know, as soon as I was starting to confess, and you know, I'm not Catholic, so I didn't have to do this to a, a priest or anything, but this confessional stance is something that Christians should be able to do publicly as well as privately to God. But people were demanding my confession of homosexuality. Hmm. And it was not a thing I could confess of. They're like, you got all these other things, yeah, yeah, whatever. We all have pride. Confess this one. <laughs> but I, and not only that, but they they assumed, right? I first of all, this was such a problematic sin, right? The the amount that the modern church focuses oh, on homosexuality as insane. like the peak of sins, given proportionally, right? <laughs> Liberation theology. We should know that taking care of the poor is what it's about. Yeah, and yet. 0.001% of the Bible says some ambiguous things about dudes taking it up the ass, and we're all that's, frothing at the that's mouth. what we're all wanting to Hands talk up about. Hands up in the air. Number one, shut even, it down. Even if God is actually not affirming, we should spend that amount of time, yeah. like focusing on this as a negative issue. Now, as a positive issue, I think we can celebrate all things. As, as they should be but anyway as a side quick side yeah. note it's very small but it's very important jesus never mentions anything condemning of homosexuality or any queerness yeah that's a class the classic argument it's it's true and it's not true in some ways jesus affirms <laughs> queer identity um you know right when people's you know you know if i say oh jesus never said anything negative about homosexuality people say like yeah but he did say something about marriage in Matthew 19 and Mark, mm -hmm. and Mark 9. And I'm like, yeah, but what happened right after that verse in Matthew 19 is Jesus then affirmed, literally after affirming uh, the sanctity of marriage. Why? Because of the value and dignity due to women. Mm -hmm. He then goes on, when his disciples continue to complain, to say some people are born eunuchs mm -hmm. from their mother's womb, some people are made that way by others, and some people make themselves that way for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Mm -hmm. And this doesn't just mean celibate, because as we know, eunuchs were often used as sex slaves. Mm -hmm. So um, not that that's not problematic sin-wise, but... And then he says, let anyone accept this who can. He puts it in some ways as a higher calling. Absolutely. Which um, Jesus was a eunuch. Jesus was accused of being a eunuch. Jesus was queer, mm -hmm. like undeniably in that sense. Yeah. You know, like I'll, I'll get to this idea of the queerness of, of Christ and God and stuff. But but anyway, all, all of this to say, um, I back to this this confession idea, right? I was not allowed to confess really anything. I I was so afraid of being condemned on this one issue that I performed in some ways in good ways, right? Like I I would you know suppress other sins because I couldn't afford to be uh, suspect. You know, I needed to be above scrutiny or something. So that limited my capacity to confess. I would personally argue that performative righteousness exactly. is not actually what's best for you. Exactly. That, that the shame totally that you're carrying is so much weightier and more harmful to yourself than whatever small things that you're doing right. Amen. Amen. Uh, and I feel that, right? That shame is probably worse than, you know, and a particular sin. Mm -hmm. um, not condoning sin, right? let's be mature about this we're not we're not <laughs> we're, we're not, adults here <laughs> we're not talking about binaries here yeah we're breaking the binary we're breaking the binaries so so confession was difficult and yet i had so much confessing to do not of homosexuality but rather of ungratefulness hmm. ungratefulness in the immeasurable gift that i now acknowledge that god has given me in my queerness Right. How much time did I waste raging against God for this thing that God delighted in? Mm. Right. I 
begged God to take this away. You know, I, I was angry at God for what felt like breaking me or allowing to be broken me yeah. to be broken or something. And what a mistake. What, what a waste of time that I could have spent thanking God, loving God, loving myself. And I just want people to hear that message that, you know, I still hear, you know, I, I watch gay TikToks sometimes because they're fire, but you know, I, <laughs> I hear these people sometimes defend and say like, do you think I would choose this? I would never choose this in a million years. Why and not? I'm sitting here thinking, oh, hon, you're going you're gonna to have different feelings about that in a very short amount of time once you realize how glorious you are, yeah. how fabulous God made you. This is the gay that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Amen, amen, <laughs> and amen. Right? You know, so th this idea of like, oh, I would never choose this. Number one, like, that's a... I, I get that's where that that might be where you are at this moment, but queerness needs to be okay, even if it is chosen. Otherwise, it remains this thoroughly second-class citizen type of thing. So there's a big message there. Before I get to your question of what is it that queerness brings, I want to jump. This is the last boom that I think that I wanted. I want to. We're jump. on our fourth boom. I think we're on our fourth boom. Maybe there were just three booms. I don't remember. Um, Boomology is a very difficult. Boomology process. So, hard. <laughs> so, so the last, and this is a this is a profound boom. The Bible says, "Don't be unwelcoming to people." Mm -hmm. Leviticus says, "Don't do uh, horrid practices that harm people. Don't go against what nature tells you, and don't harm young people." Essentially, essentially, like that's what all In the clover passages, right? <clears throat> of unequal proportion. Yeah. So how, how twisted is it that all of these laws, which in the culture at the time had different meanings based on idolatry and patriarchy and all of that stuff, that were designed to protect the marginalized, that were designed to protect the weak, have in fact been used to harm them even more. Right. Hmm. Properly understood, every single one of the clobber passages is meant to protect people, yeah. not harm them. The Bible is not a weapon. Don't use it like one. The second issue here is interpretation. Right. Sodom and Gomorrah, we kind of skip over the fact that there's this parallel story in Judges chapter 19 and at the end of Sodom. Right. This, this fact that don't rape these men, please, here have my daughter instead because she's not worth as much, right? This core issue of misogyny mm -hmm. tied in with how we think about homosexuality or how, how they thought about male sexuality. Oh. Um, so then you get to Leviticus, right? Again, even you, you heard it earlier in that uh, women shouldn't dress like men. You know, the Bible is steeped in patriarchy and that is hugely problematic. Right, the idea that Malakoi means effeminate and that the proper translation could be being effeminate is a sin. Well, what does that mean for half the population? Yeah. <sighs> right? Anyway, so that the core issue, this is the last boom about just biblical interpretation on queerness at this moment. There's too, before you get to your last boom, there's too much to unpack about the misogyny and patriarchy in the Old Testament for this episode. Absolutely. We'll have a feminist episode coming up real soon, so you yes. can stay tuned for that. But yes, go yes. on. So, you know, but the fact that crucifixion itself, so this gets back to Jesus, that crucifixion itself was meant to be a humiliating experience. Why? Because Rome was a shame honor culture. Sure. It's <clears> another <throat> way of exerting dominion. Yeah. So what do you do? Hang someone, you know, kill naked. them. But kill them naked. And then... You know, Jesus was stabbed, right? And according to Roman sexuality, to be penetrated is to be weak. It is to be, right? Jesus died in the most shameful way possible, not just the most painful way possible at, the, at that time, um, but also in the most shameful way possible. So this is God's divine empathy to meet us as this person, as a, as a broken, queer, marginalized person. Jesus was 
called a eunuch, called a sexual minority, not in the Bible, but there's there's external records of Jesus's opponents talking talking to him about that, and he was brutally wow. murdered, and crucified, and that still happens to LGBTQ plus people today, especially trans women. That you know Matthew Shepard was crucified in in Laramie. It. Mm. And that type of empathy that Jesus knows what that's like. So to, to get to your very important question, what does queerness, what lens does queerness give me on the Bible or reality? Definitely this marginalized lens, right? I, I know what it is, you know, not, not comparable to anyone else, but in my own unique way that is not comparable, that, that other people can't relate to. I know what it is to be despised, rejected, yeah. and not just from society, but from my church. Yeah. You know, I, I was kicked out of my church this year. Welcome to 2020. Um, after years of relational investment to just try to ask, I mean, it's, it's almost like, hey, police, can you stop violently murdering people? Just a little bit. You know, I was asking my church, can you just actually welcome someone? So there, there's more to it than that. I mean, what, what else? What else do I have? Um, you know, I've got this, I've got this uh, twinkle in my eye every time I see something that could be queer representation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, so I see, uh, I see Jesus and John. <laughs> The one whom Jesus loved. I see David and Jonathan. That's a good one. These two dudes kissing in a field. Um, look it up. <laughs> look it up. Who did who, who did David love more than women? Jonathan. It's um, pretty spicy. Pretty spicy. Steamy story. You know, <laughs> Saul would not let. Uh, Jonathan goes see his boyfriend. <laughs> typical. Typical. Yeah. Anyway, um, you know, but more than that, I get to see the queerness of God. And hopefully I can share that too, right? Part of what queerness does is to show a rainbow, you know, to split the white light and, and reveal the colors within. And colors are more beautiful, right? There, you and I have talked about this more beauty theological argument. Yeah. And is it not is it not worth looking for more beauty? Yeah. And God has created beauty that is not necessary. Ah, oh, right. There is no utilitarian value to some of the beauty that we have, to so much of the beauty. We talk often with the theodicy, the question of evil. Mm -hmm. Why is there... It's not just why is there evil, but why is there so much evil? Mm. Uh, an opposite question is... Why is there beauty? And then why is there so much beauty? Because there is so much beauty. Yeah. And I love the story in Genesis, the creation narratives that describe, it was in Genesis 2, the second narrative mm -hmm. account, where God makes the tree of life. It's like, okay, you, you got this tree that you need. And then God also makes trees of all varieties that are pleasing to the sight and mm -hmm. taste. Mm -hmm. And it's like, they didn't need that. No. There's no part of that they, they needed. But God made it because it's beautiful and because it's good and it's worth celebrating. And so the more we become funneled into this one-way thinking, this utilitarian thinking of restricting the absurd, restricting the abundance and the diversity, mm -hmm. We miss out on the nature of God, which is to celebrate and to create just for the sake of creating, <laughs> just for the sake of making more goodness. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that queerness does really, really well. There's also this sense of deconstruction, mm. right? The, what is maleness? What is femaleness? What is anything that you can start to deconstruct? And, and those and questions of identity are actually... Cross those boundaries. Because they're central to identity, they're also central to identity with God. Amen. Which makes it a theological question and a hugely important theological question, which people who never have to question their gender never actually get the opportunity to ask. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. They miss out on that. They miss out on so much because they're never faced with a challenge around it. Yeah. I want to bring up, I know we, we should probably be wrapping up pretty soon. You brought in Jesus. I love bringing in Jesus. It's great to bring in Jesus. So bring Talking in about Jesus. the queerness of Jesus is a very exciting, riveting conversation. There's so much to unpack there. Controversial, too. Controversial. We won't obviously dive into everything that there is, but I want to just briefly touch on Jesus's gender and sex. Ooh, take it away, my boy. So, quick caveat note. <laughs> what I'm about to say is not something that I intend to prove, but nonetheless, I think it is worth thinking about. Mm. I think there are some questions that are not saying you must believe this, but what does it mean for you to even just consider it. Mm-hmm. So in this case, then let us consider Jesus. First of all, what would have happened if he was she, mm. if it wasn't Yeshua, but Yeshuana or something, <laughs> <laughs> Yeshuot. I don't know what the female, if there would be a, did you see that? He just added a Hebrew ending to the word. <laughs> um, This is this question. Could God incarnate have been a woman in that society? And there is a part of me that says no. Because for one, a woman's testimony was not considered valid. Mm -hmm. It was not considered a testimony. Yeah. She wouldn't have even been allowed in the temple. She wouldn't have been allowed. What implications would that have had for the God incarnate to be breaking in and not even be allowed in the temple? Mm -hmm. And think about how quickly she would be killed for saying the same things that Jesus was saying as a perceived man. Yep. So it makes me wonder, could Jesus have ever been a woman? And if Jesus was hypothetically a woman, could it be something that everyone covered up (laughs) for the sake of the power of the narrative that they hid the fact that Jesus was actually a woman? Yeah. So that's one question. The second question about Jesus's sex, as in like biological sex, Mm -hmm. could Jesus have been intersex? Now, interestingly, it's it, we don't really understand the biology of how God, the Holy Spirit, enters <laughs> into Mary. Um, but as far as the second chromosomal pair that determines one's sex... Where'd you get that wife from, bro? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, was Jesus just a clone of Mary? You know, like, was there extra, like, holy DNA on a human biological level that was added in? Or did Jesus just... Like, or did God like create a sperm in that moment and a, a human sperm and go like, Boop, there it is. Yeah, and <laughs> what does that mean? Haploid cells, diploid cells, however that works. Yeah, exactly. In any case, Jesus, as is understood by um, the prophecy in Isaiah, Isaiah 53, it's referencing the servant. We talked about the servant um, poems in Isaiah in a previous podcast episode, but just briefly, they may have been referring to. Um, the people of Israel, the nation of Israel. But in any case, there's some clear, very, very distinct illusions that these servant poems, in particular Isaiah 53, are drawn to Jesus as an understanding, as a fulfillment of that prophecy. Yeah, I mean, his disciples did it, and they were Jews. Yes. And it says that he was, I'm not going to get the words right, but paraphrasing, that he was not one upon which you could behold with, Goodness, like essentially that his his physical appearance was not much to look at. Yeah, exactly. The Bible says that about Jesus. Now, hypothetically speaking, that could have been a chromosomal uh, deficiency that resulted in his physical lack of, um, you know, what would be considered like a, a normal or desirable appearance. Again, this is all postulation in a way that. People get really upset. I'm not trying to say this is the case, but I think it's important to be asking these questions just to think about it for a second. What if Jesus was intersex? Or trans, or... What do those implications have for the God that we follow? Yeah, I mean, two thoughts there. Number one is that if you are upset by that idea... Yes, exactly. What does it mean about you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, if if I propose that Jesus is gay and we know that Jesus was celibate, then 
according to the most like conservative legitimate theologies you shouldn't have any problem with that it wouldn't really matter it wouldn't matter but if you if something still like uh is uncomfy for you about that you know or if the prospect of jesus being a woman is difficult for you then perhaps you're not actually as pro-woman or as welcoming as you thought or even as pro-jesus sure because you you demand that jesus fit a certain mold just because it was the mold that jesus fit well whoop-de-doo you can feel comfortable in that what if it wasn't the case that still yeah that still means would you still be following jesus yeah it still means that you consider anything but a cis straight man to be your savior less like god Mm, yeah yeah So, so there's that aspect um the second aspect is was it an accommodation of god to send jesus as a male right was it something that god like well i guess i have to do this otherwise you know it won't it's not work. gonna work out is, is it yeah is it this like <laughs> is it this is something lost in the fact that jesus would not have been acceptable as 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 female presenting yeah. And I think to some extent, right? Like there's this idea of Jesus Jesus says it is it is the sick who need a doctor. Mm-hmm. Right? And it was actually a Serbian friend of mine who pointed this out that people who were on the margins of society and this is my, you know, heart is broken open metaphor, we already know how to empathize with people. Right? There's this this classic idea that women in our society are taught how to read boys or girls are taught how to read boys stories but boys are not taught how to read girls stories does Hmm. that make sense so like a girl is taught to some extent because they have to because there's so many stories written for or about boys sure women are uh, are encouraged to find themselves in that somehow yeah but the reverse that that um egalitarian reverse is it's a privilege of never having to consider the other narrative yeah you never have to put yourself empathetically behind the eyes of someone else. Same thing with people of color, like all, all these issues. So we already knew, marginalized people already knew how to empathize. You know, Jesus didn't need to come as uh, a woman in order to relate to women. But men would have been unable to relate to a woman. Mm-hmm. That is their failing. That is their sickness. Sure. It is the sick who need a doctor, right? Mm-hmm. So God made something that they could accept because of their limitation Mm -hmm. got accommodated for their limitation yeah and and what is scathing thing beautifully i think and again this is very controversial but yeah god being the most privileged the Mm -hmm. one with the most power yeah recognized the desire to see through the eyes of someone else and stepped away absconded from that power relinquished that power by coming in the form of a human being and it says so in in philippians 2 that Mm -hmm. christ being in very nature god did not consider equality with god something to be grasped but instead took on the form of a lowly servant and i think there's something very powerful about that of saying god didn't have to do that Mm -hmm. god doesn't have to do anything for us but god in loving us chose to Mm. decenter and deep privilege god's self yeah in order to enter into our story yeah it's not, I mean, we can all, we can call it all God's story, but in a way it's really God entering into our story <laughs> Yeah. in a way of saying, I want you to be seen. I want you to feel seen and known mm. and loved. Mm-hmm. And so I will look through your eyes. I will do my best to understand everything that you understand, not because I have to, but because I want to, because I love you. Yeah. Which is essentially how to be an ally. Yeah. go figure yeah. you know I, there's a couple pastors in my life who need to learn that lesson jesus is the best ally jesus is the best ally um you know okay so so two more thoughts on on jesus god and these these are fun because they kind of, the last one gets quite eschatological cool and then a thought on god and gender so there's this idea of physical trans identity this idea of being born in a type of body that doesn't match you hmm. but there's actually, and he's he's not affirming, which is a little bit ironic, but there's this uh, Christian apologist who, when asked a question about trans identity, very empathetically said, I think there's someone who can relate to you in the idea of not feeling like you're in the right body. 
and that is Jesus, yeah. right? Jesus as God wow. in a human body, there is, there is some aspect of that that is trans. How is he not affirming after I, that? I don't know. How do you say something that's that beautiful? Yeah, you know, seriously. You know, but his his response was pretty gracious, um, but still just didn't, didn't the mark quite get it. I mean, most, almost all non-affirming identity uh, or uh, non-affirming theology comes down to gender complementarity and patriarchy, this idea of of God being a man yeah. um, and what that means for for domination and penetration and all of these things. The the last idea about Jesus and gender and gayness, uh, queerness, is that Revelation talks about us marrying Jesus. Mm. Well, don't know about you, I'm a cis man. Yeah. I happen to be okay with dudes. <laughs> and I'm not sexualizing Jesus in this, but I'm a I'm a marry I'm a marry Jesus someday, which makes Jesus by pan whatever Polly Paul, Paul that that's oh that's 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 complicated too um, <laughs> right so you know we're all gonna marry Jesus and if you're a dude even a heterosexual dude you're gonna marry a dude someday at the end of time so congratulations Jesus is queer and so are you as yeah. demanded by theology um, last last little note on queerness and identity of God that I can think of is pronouns. So the Bible often talks about God the Father, particularly, or the, the parent, as a father. Male figures, king figures, um, all these things. There's plenty of places in the Bible that talk about um, God acting as a mother, right? Pulling Israel to God's breast. Um, uh, as a, There's a mother hen reference. There's all sorts of uh, wonderful kind of images. The... We were just doing a class on wisdom, and that was, wisdom was personified as a woman. Sophia. Sophia. Well, that's Greek. I wish, I, I, want, I want to know the Hebrew word for it. Um, but that word was then uh, connected to logos in, in the New Testament. Hmm. And who's the logos? Jesus. So Jesus has this spirit in in Jesus that is also uh, personified as feminine. Yeah. Lady woman points. is man Jesus. <laughs> lady wisdom is... Yeah, yeah. lady wisdom. Um, so I tend to use uh, male pronouns for Jesus. I tend to use female pronouns for the Holy Spirit. And I tend to use they, them pronouns for God. Um, and I... Yeah. Or, you know, just referring to God as God and God being their pronouns. Sure. Anyway, so that's... Fun things about sexuality, gender identity, and God and spiritness. It's beautiful. It's and it's very, very fun. It is so fun. I've had a lot of fun tonight. Hope you all had as well. Thank you for listening to Barefoot to Emmaus. Love you. May you find wonder in the mundane, hope amidst the chaos, and comfort in the love that makes you you. Go in peace. Mm-hmm.